Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast sponsored by MWW. Uh, my name is John Reynolds, the host. Coming up this week, we've got the UK chairman of Publicist Media, Phil Jordiardis, who's giving us the full lowdown on why the media agencies are moving to the old BBC TV centre in West London. Uh, we've also got some short on-the-road interviews with Culture Minister Margot James, radio presenter Dave Berry and Radio Centre Chief Executive Vaughan Kenny. They took place, took place yesterday at the annual Jamboree for the UK commercial radio industry. And finally, we've got an interview with Jeremy Pounder, Futures Director at Mindshare and Max Dawes, Partnerships and Marketing Director at Zappa, all about augmented reality and its future. Uh, so first up is the UK uh, Chairman of Publicist Media. Okay, so thanks for joining me, uh, Phil. So Publicist Media is moving all of its six uh, media agencies, uh, so Zenith, Starcom, Blue 449, Digitas, Performance and Spark Foundry into the former BBC TV centre. I guess the first question is, is why are you doing it? Yeah, well, we're also moving in all our practices as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks, John, for the opportunity to tell you why. Um, so it's been a couple of years since Publicist Media outlined their strategy for um, for the group, mm-hmm. uh, which is this blend of agency brands powered by specialist practices. Um, and obviously, if you were designing that from scratch, you wouldn't necessarily cite all the various entities that make up that uh, model across London the way they're dotted about at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, you know, the answer is, if we could have waved the magic wand and done it two years ago, we would have done, but uh, uh, life is never that simple. So clearly, um, this is the next stage in delivering the vision of our model uh, for tackling the market that we're operating in, bringing together everyone so that we can create the most flexible and progressive solution to the demands our clients are making on us. And did you was did you look at other options in London, or was this always the choice of where to move in? And I think you say you, you hope to have everyone in by the, the second quarter of 2019. When are you actually going to start moving people into the new premises? Well, um, the plan is that we move by the end, uh, ideally, uh, at the beginning of the Q2, mm-hmm. um, and we would envisage moving everyone in pretty much at the same time. Um, it's going to, you know, we, we announced it, we're signing contracts in the next couple of weeks, um, uh, appointing all the various suppliers we need to make that uh, uh, delivery scale, and it's a tight timeline, and we'll deliver it to everyone simultaneously, um, within reason, obviously. Uh, 2,200 people arriving on the same day is probably not wise, but we'll get everyone in in a similar period so over the next within 10 months but pretty much simultaneously and did you look at other options or was this always the first choice or you mean in terms of location yeah sorry um yeah um we've exhaustively looked at buildings that uh, are sort of future proofed and deliver that scale of of, uh, 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 of square footage mm. and we looked north west east and south uh, we looked at the availability of existing uh, stock and then new developments that are yet to be built and in the case of the television centre, a building that had practical completion about six weeks ago and uh, of all those options, this was the 
one we went for. It was uh, enjoyable working on a pitch to the other side of the uh, the line for a change. Right. Okay. So, and how long? I'm not quite sure. Is it? Is it like a? Is it a leasing? Is it a ten year agreement? How long are you going to be there for? Um, uh, uh, we're in the middle of negotiating the contract, so I'm not going to tell you. But it's a long term strategy. So it'll be longer than ten years, then likely, yeah. It's a long term strategy, okay. John. Okay. Uh, and in the in the press release. Um, Publicist media said the move could be transformational. I mean, does that for an office move? Does, does that not sound as though you're over-egging it? Why, why is it transformational? Well, yeah, I mean, we all know that word is uh, oft used. But mm. um, you know, the, the thing we've seen various uh, moves heralded as, as transformational before, and uh, it's easy to be cynical mm. about uh, an office move. Mm. Um, but you know, the truth is, uh, if you'd asked me two years ago, was, was this the right thing to do? Or so let's say three or five years ago, I can go back 35 years, but mm. I probably would have not been a fan of it, if I'm honest. Right. Um, but, you know, you've got to read what's going on in our, or listen, in the case of your podcast, to what's going on in the market. You know, we are, uh, uh, you know, our competition is wider. Mm. Uh, the, the requirements are broader mm. and uh, you, you know if you actually then say well how many groups have made a, a, a move like this mm. you know identified an up and coming part of London um, put all their assets into one place uh, and come out of the block saying that we're going to uh, make this a living breathing uh, uh, demonstration of our model uh, you know uh, that's not the case and and uh, you know, I drove past Mediacom on the way to Turnmills, which is where I am today. Um, the group owner somewhere else. Uh, Wavemaker will be somewhere else. And, you, you know, and you, you take a choice. But this is, this is as transformational as it gets in the media space. And uh, I think we'd rather be leaders rather than followers in this, in this way. Okay. You said then a couple of years ago you wouldn't, you wouldn't have been a fan of such a move. And, and secondly, yeah. in, in the press release, you talk about greater collaboration and, sh- and sharing of services. C- can you give me two yeah. examples about how that could benefit, say, the sharing of services? How, how would that manifest itself? Yeah, well, I mean, we have services like content and, and elements of performance or even our business development teams. Mm. Uh, whichever element is, a, is what we call a practice, uh, some of our tech and insight and data services that are cited somewhere because there's a value in them being together, but spend a lot of time using their Oyster cards. You know, we're, we're going to cut out uh, a lot of travel time where people are moving around buildings to plug in their services mm. to the agency brand. Um, so take your choice. You know, if, if we want quality content delivery injected into agency uh, responses, uh, it's better they go up a list than get on the tube line. Right, okay. And, and, and why, why weren't you fan of uh, uh, the move a couple of years ago, then, such a move? Because... You know, I, I was living in a, a world, a sort okay. of slightly rose-tinted spectacle world of distinctive agency brands, and and uh, and of course we still care about culture and difference, mm. and and of course we do. But if I'm, you know, do we do we care about that as much as our 
market cares about it as much as clients care. You know, they're talking about this. They're talking about lots of different models mm. and commentators that you have interviewed or mm. written about or that write themselves. I mean, I, I can't go to bed uh, 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 before I've read five articles from LinkedIn about new agency models and the impact on mm. on media brands. I, I mean, I, you know, a few years ago, I thought, you know, the model was fine as it was, but both in terms of locations and operating uh, practices. If I look at the last four pitches we've done, I'm not going to go into detail, they're all different. Mm. And they, they're, they're responding to a market that wants difference, but they don't want it neatly packaged up the way it was when I was a little boy. Okay, and is there not a danger, I mean, with all these agencies clubbed together, presumably it's beneficial to have some sort of you know, uh, competition between the agencies. Is, is, yeah. is, is that not a danger? Will that not dilute it if they're all together then or not? Or? Vision of a, 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 there'll be a shared space on one of the upper floors. And when we hear the, uh, the champagne courts being uh, popped for a new business <laughs> win, create the competition uh, between okay. the floors. Okay, and I mean, I, I guess if you're, a, well, not a cynic, but you could say the next step, would be if you're collaborating all these agencies in in one big office space then you could eventually strip out management you could have one profit and loss account but you're saying that that's not going to be the case and you could in the end have less media agency brands in uh, you, you know there's a difference between collaboration and consolidation and mm. the loss of brands um, you know uh, I, I don't think it's inconsistent to have centralisation mm. and proliferation of brands because, as I just said to you, mm. if anything, we'll have more brands because we've got more distinct demands from our clients. So, so actually, I just think the brands might evolve and look slightly differently. And you know, we've got different models for different clients, for different markets, uh, for different services. So. No, the idea that it's going to turn into some homogenous uh, group of people is, is not reflective of the way the market works. It's just that it's a hell of a lot easier to be agile and flexible and deliver if you've got everyone working together to work out how to deliver those discrete services, some of which will be represented by agency brands, some of which might be bespoke client units, some of which might be only certain services. It's just a lot easier and more fluid and flexible and commercially sound to do it that way than, you know, from all parts of London. Okay, so, I mean, five years down the road, all these agency brands, um, they'll all still be in existence as standalone entities. You're confident of that? Am I confident that all the agency brands will be there? Yeah. Uh, what I'm confident of mm. is that our publicist media will mm. evolve to deliver mm. to the client community and mm. uh, uh, what it needs to deliver what they want. Uh, you know, I think it would be naive to sit here going, mm. you know, the way to do that is to defend every brand we've got at the moment. We'll mm. defend our people, we'll defend our model, and mm. we'll build our brands. And the ones that succeed the most will be the ones that last longest. But, you know, I'm not a magician, John, and no. I'm not a, a futurist uh, of any great shape. I, you know, brands are changing around us. We're seeing names. It's hard coming up with names all the time. Mm. Will there be cons consolidation of brands? Maybe. Maybe not. It depends what happens. But we will be in a much more flexible and agile environment to, to, to sort that out. Okay, and what's been the response from uh, both staff and, and clients, or is it too early yet? Uh, uh, well, 
change is, is uh, where, you know, we, we took the decision to announce this on Monday to everyone simultaneously, rather than hear through leaks in the property press going into the evening standard, which would have happened otherwise. So it was a shock, obviously, in the sense that you're, you're, you're telling 2,200 people uh, at nine o'clock on a Monday morning uh, about, a, uh, about a move. Um, uh, I happen to be in one of the buildings at the moment doing some uh, workshop sessions with people, answering difficult questions. Um, inevitably, you get more difficult questions than easy ones. You get uh, people raising the concerns it represents in terms of travel time um, and things like that. We'll deal with those things, and um, our priority is our staff, because as you know, our staff is the only asset we've got. Um, it will take time, and of course, people would love to cause trouble and say it, it, it's going to wreak havoc. It won't. Um, and we believe, in the end, we'll be one step ahead of a market that's going to have to do similar things. I, I find it hard to imagine um, in, the, in, in the competitive market that we're going to find everyone else just sitting where they are, that mm. there will need to be moves like this. And we'd rather be uh, doing it first and uh, getting some, what we believe is some beachfront property in a vibrant new part of London, uh, 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 revitalised part of London, than, than following uh, others doing it. Okay, that's fantastic. Last question, very briefly on on Martin Sorrell. I guess uh, listeners be interested in on your viewpoint. Do you think two questions? Do you think the way the whole saga has been handled by WPP has been a bit bit shabby and it's been badly handled? And in terms of um, from the quotes from Martin Sorrell, he's going to make a comeback, isn't he, of some sorts? What do you think he'll do next? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't comment on. Okay. Uh, I'm not, well, I can comment on some of it. I, I'm not privy to no. uh, the machinations of the WPP board. Um, I think it's, uh, I think it's personally a shame that it's played out the way it has. Uh, and uh, rather than focusing on his contribution and his legacy, uh, there's a bit too much time spent talking uh, and trying to answer the questions we've asked about the way it's been handled and the nature of the departure. Uh, Martin Sorrell. Uh, was a was and is a formidable competitor uh, uh, who certainly gave us a few bloody noses along the way. So um, you know, uh, I I wouldn't comment on the way it's been done. What was the other question? Uh, well, I mean, what what, do, what 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 do you think he'll do next? I mean, it's very unlikely that he'd sort of strike an a, a alliance with uh, one of his rivals from the past or anything like that, isn't it? Like publicists or anything. I I I, I mean. I, Personally, I would have thought it was more likely that he would join forces with a consultancy firm um, because, uh, you know, starting up is uh, uh, tricky at any time uh, and even uh, someone as uh, uh, significant as uh, Martin Sorrell may wonder whether that's the best way to use uh, the rest of his career. I, 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 uh, he is a formidable uh, competitor and I'm sure there'll be any number of interested parties thinking about how to utilise his knowledge bank, um, and uh, it will uh, create some fun for all of us, I'm sure. Joining me, Margot. So you're on, on stage today. So what specifically are you, are you talking about today? Um, I am talking about um, the future of radio, the passion that I feel for radio and how seriously government takes it, and we want to work with the industry, advertisers, radio, um, 
broadcasters to really secure the future for radio. Okay, so lots of people listen to this podcast uh, work in the advertising industry, which obviously your heritage used to work at Ogilvy, I think, which is a, a WPP agency. Also, lots of talk about what Martin Sorrell is going to do next. Obviously, a big name. I mean, he's, I think he's 72 or 73 now. Do you think he will make a, a comeback and have a, another successful career? Well, I wouldn't put anything uh, past Martin. Um, I sold my company to Martin, to WPP. So I worked at WPP for a few years before we joined my agency joined the Ogilvy and Mather Network. Um, I have the highest regard for Martin Sorrell. And, um, you know, I think he is the advertising great of, of my era. Um, I was very sorry to see what happened. I don't know the background to it. It's a long time since I've worked for the business, you know, well over 10 years. Uh, but uh, nothing dims my admiration for Martin Sorrell. Okay, and, and very quickly, there was a vote in the House of Lords against uh, what the M MPs voted for on press reform. I guess you'd be uh, upset about that, will you, that you have to vote on it again? Well, um, basically, we voted, we've voted on it twice already. I'm responsible for the data protection bill, and people have hijacked it to try to get this measure in to restrict press freedom. Um, and uh, we will resist it, and I'm, we will prevail. Okay. Uh, and lastly, I think you've been on record as quoting that you're um, advocating increased regulation of, of Google and, and Facebook. I mean, do you think that's likely to happen in both in Europe and the U.S.? Well, I can't speak for the U.S. They are very attached, you know, to the um, the amendment, aren't they, in the States? However, they are. Congress is getting frustrated. They have passed legislation at least to limit the opportunities for sex traffickers to advertise human beings online. So, you know, Congress are now taking a stand. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Germany are ahead of everybody. They have um, regulated to the extent that the, so the voluntary codes are now enforceable by statute and in Germany um, social media companies are obliged to take um, offending content down um, within 24 hours or face significant fines and I think Germany have got the right approach. And lastly there's lots of calls from Mark Zuckerberg to speak in front of MPs. Do you think he's likely to actually come over and, and face questions? Well that's really a matter for the um, select committee. Uh, you know he hasn't yet has he? But I think the select committee are doing a great job with or without him appearing in front of them. Uh, they they have grilled other Facebook executives and executives of other social media companies. There are some improvements going on, by the way, thanks to the pressure. Um, and there is no doubt that uh, the social media platforms are endeavouring to set higher standards. Um, but in my view, there is a long way to go. OK, thank you very much. Uh, so thanks for joining us, uh, Siobhan. Uh, just I mean, quickly, uh, obviously we're here at the, the Radio Centre conference, uh, lots of themes. I mean, what's your overall, what do you think the overall theme is uh, for people to take away from this morning's conference? I think there's two things, really. The first is, you know, we're in the middle of a, of a number of radio firsts this week. So my big theme is about collaboration. You know, mm -hmm. we're in a new world now. We've got many, many different competitors. So we need to tie up in different sorts of partnerships. And that has created the first ever radio. Radio Audio Week. It's created the most amazing mental health moment that we broadcast mm -hmm. across over 300 radio stations yesterday uh, and it's created these awards for young people wanting to get into the industry. So those are all first, which I'm very proud of. So I think collaboration is big. I also think trust in the medium of radio at a time of fake news mm -hmm. is something that we need to take very, very seriously. You talked a lot about trust. I mean, uh, and fake news is obviously um, arguably a, a dig at Facebook 
Duncan and uh, Google around brand safety. Is there um, is there concrete evidence that the radio industry has actually benefited uh, about with customers uh, uncertain, uh, uncertainty and distrust of, of the likes of Facebook? Well, I mean, what's concrete and what's not, all we know is that we've just unveiled, you know, for the first quarter of 2008, yet again, record revenues, 12.5% increase year on year. Uh, it, it, it's due to a number of factors, but I would say that probably plays into it. By the way, I don't have a dig. It's not about having a dig. I don't believe, I think we all can coexist perfectly happily, but I think those companies have grown very, very big. They've delivered marvellous things for us, and we're at a time now when we need to just, as a society, take a look and see what it is that they're actually doing. And you had the Government Minister, Margot James, uh, speaking. I mean, what, what, what should people from the radio industry take away from what she said? What was the mood, mood and music like? Is there a lot of positives to be taken away from what she said? Well, she certainly sounded very positive. She talked about our deregulation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the government has said they will deregulate further commercial radio as soon as, as soon as parliamentary time allows. That could be quite a long time, to be honest with you, with Brexit coming. So the other thing they've said is they will talk to Ofcom about what flexibility they have within the existing statute which, in our view, is quite a lot. There's a lot of stuff that's grown up around custom and practice, which is probably no longer really relevant for a world where, you know, mm -hmm. digital streaming services are all over the place. So you said it'd take a long time. When, 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 when do you think we'll get an update on that, then? She, I, I, how long is a piece of string? It is possible that the government could go the day after tomorrow. Actually, we, we've got a slot. Has anyone got any legislation to put in there? We know that the team at DCMS have drawn up a bill, so it's ready to go. It's just about finding a slot. And obviously, the parliamentary arithmetic is rather difficult at the yeah. moment. So there are many factors there. Okay, and, and finally, uh, you mentioned some of the work you're doing with the Advertising Association. Obviously, they've got the, um, the Brexit campaign. Well, what, what's the work you're doing uh, with, with the uh, Advertising Association at the moment? This is about boosting the regional economy in the UK. So at the moment, 56% uh, of small businesses do not advertise at all. Now, we know that some of them will be quite small, but obviously a significant percentage who could do with help and support from the advertising industry. So the AAA, perfectly placed for doing that, made up as they are of advertisers, uh, media owners and agencies and we're going to be piloting in two areas so Scotland and the West Midlands which will allow us to really get some very rich data that it does actually work if you help people to get over the line in terms of good effective advertising and that's not just about radio by the way that's about multi-platform advertising but what it delivers to the UK economy is a boost particularly for the regions. Right thank you very much. Okay, so thanks for joining us, Dave. So the new radio st uh, show starts uh, next week. So is it fair to say it's going to be a mix of the, the best bits of Christian's show and your own stamp, or is it going to be a completely new breakfast show? Um, it starts on the 4th, John. It's a pleasure to be here, by the way. Um, and no, it's going to be a completely different show. Um, the mix will come with uh, some of Christian's team are going to be staying on. So we've got Glenn and Emma, which I'm really happy about. I've worked with Glenn before. Uh, he's a very funny guy. But obviously I'm bringing Matt and a couple of new people. But we have some ideas that we did on home time that we're going to certainly implement on breakfast but we're going to have to start afresh i think one of the key elements of a breakfast show is knowing the audience and the audience knowing you and obviously christian and i are two different people so we're gonna and i can't wait to get to know them and hopefully they're going to like what we bring to the table obviously you've got the radio results coming out tomorrow i mean do you have your eye on uh, potentially catching some of your rivals in terms of listener numbers or is that too early when you're just starting off a new show um, well, I, I didn't know it was Rajar, but um, we, to be honest with you, um, our last Rajar on home time was very good. We had we posted record figures, first time it had been over a million. Um, but no, I mean, you know, the Rajar thing is... Hello, should we have a... Hi. <laughs> um, but the Rajar thing... 
thank you, thank you guys. Um, but the rage, I think, is just something that is, you know, part of our world, part of our job. You know, Christian was very successful in his rage as I've been successful in the past, but they go up and they go down. Hello, and now for the next part of the podcast, and I am delighted to be joined by Jeremy Pounder, who is Future Director, Futures Director at Mindshare, and Max Dawes, who is Partnerships and Marketing, Marketing Director at Zappa. Uh, thanks a million for joining me, gentlemen. Uh, so, uh, Jeremy, for the listeners, uh, what, does a, um, what does a Futures Director do? Um, well, it's a grandiose title, I'm trying, yep. to, trying to live up to it as much as I can. Um, in reality, it's about uh, trying to think about what's happening in terms of media and technology, yeah. uh, how consumers are adopting or, or not adopting new things, and then trying to work out what the implications are for our clients. Okay, uh, and Max, a, a bit of an overview of, of Zappa too? Cool. Well, the clue's in our name, so the last two letters, AR, Augmented Reality, which yeah. we're going to talk about more later. Uh, we have a, a suite of, of tools which allow people to create their own AR. We also have a creative team who build AR experiences on behalf of our clients. The middle bit of our name, the app bit, we're all about AR served on mobile. We have our own app, we embed our tech and other people's apps. And then the first three letters, Zaps, that's how we describe our content experiences, which are bite-sized bits of entertainment or infotainment. Okay, so Mindshare and Zappa have published its latest trend report called Layered, which looks at the future of AR, which you mentioned. Now, before we delve deep into the report, let's get a bit of an overview of the AR market. Uh, Now, AR often gets uh, bracketed with virtual reality, but can can you just explain to the listeners what the difference is? I can take that one. Okay. Virtual reality takes the user into an entirely virtual world. So it it transports them uh, into a a virtual sphere where there's none of the real world um, there. Whereas augmented reality puts digital content into the real world. Yeah. Uh, And one of the parts of of the Mindshare Futures Layer report was this spectrum of of, of reality and and how much of the real world we have and, you know, that that difference between AR and VR. Uh, They are very different use cases and often quite unhelpfully get lumped together at conferences Mm. and in... You know, uh, editorial specials, uh, but actually from a from a use cases point of view, where AR can really add value is is so different from um, the, the, the use cases where VR can really unlock value. I mean, when we talk to clients about it, we try and have a shorthand, which is that AR can bring anything in the world to you, mm-hmm. um, whereas VR can take you anywhere in the world. Right. That's okay. Really nice. And in terms of AR and VR, I mean, which is which is the more likely of the two to get scale and is, is getting more traction in the market? I mean, our, our sense is is that AR is a is a more viable opportunity for yeah. for brands and clients at the moment. I mean, obviously, the challenge with VR is it um, requires a headset, which yeah. is you know typically um, you know relatively expensive for consumers. Yeah. Whereas AR is accessible through the mobile, which almost everyone has um, to you know to varying degrees today. Um, so I, you know, our sense is that, that again, because AR doesn't rely on you being transported to a new world, yeah. because AR is about your surroundings, there are a wider range of applications um, that you know the brands and consumers can can apply for uh, for AR. Um, so our sense is both the, from the from the tech side and also from the consumer side, AR has the has the greater potential in certainly in the short to medium term. Okay, and in terms of, in terms of mindshare, I mean, 
in terms of personnel dedicated to to AR at the moment, is that a small? Are you got a growing number of workers on this at the moment, yeah. or how much of your budget is? We, we don't have people dedicated yeah. um, to AR. We have a, an invention team okay. um, who work across lots of different technologies um, and create content for you know for different platforms and with different partners, um, and they will then work with specialists in the area. You know, in the mm. way that we have done with, with Zapper on this on this report. Um, to try and deliver the actual execution. So our role is trying to navigate the whole landscape um, and then make recommendations about who to partner with for, for more specialist uh, skill sets. And Max, or either of you, can you just give us a, a sort of a, a brief idea of how big the AR market is in the UK and globally at the moment? Just one point on, on, on that last question, uh, yeah. which is increasingly we're seeing uh, client side that uh, a team member is being put on this to go and become an expert and then you know, run their roster of, of, of suppliers within an AR, taking a sort of okay. global AR role, uh, which has been very interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, well, to the scale of the market point, you know, every day it, it would appear that there's an analyst report saying that by 20-something, the industry is going to be worth mm-hmm. X zillion. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very hard to, to quantify that. Um, we're coming at it from a tech provider's point of view, and certainly we're seeing... Uh, fast growth and we're seeing our, our clients get more and more senior and we're seeing uh, people be more strategic and less campaign focused uh, so yeah I can't put a number to it but it's certainly growing very quickly okay I mean another way of looking at it is that you've got platforms like snap which essentially to a large degree are AR platforms yeah with users in the hundreds of millions so 200 million daily users for snap so we've got you know a number of different Avenues into AR, um, which you know do genuinely have scale now. Okay, and in terms of the the report, I mean, what should what should listeners take away? What are the key takeaways from from the report? Well, I, I guess our overall conclusion is that you know, historically, the way AR, AR has often been used has been for sort of one-off, fun engagement moments, what, mm-hmm. what we call surprise and delight moments for consumers, um, and those are absolutely powerful. And we think AR will still be used in that way. But, but we think there's also greater um, potential for it to be um, used more widely than that, mm-hmm. um, and particularly around more everyday um, applications in terms of utility, practical information, ways in which brands can, can provide something of service um, uh, for clients. That's probably our overall theme, I would say. Okay, what would be examples then maybe of utility or, pr- you know... Um, so I think a lot of the work that Google Lens are uh, trying to do through image mm-hmm. recognition is a good example um, of utility. So ways in which you can use um, image recognition in, say, streets, street environments, unfamiliar environments, to identify um, you know, restaurants or shop opening hours um, that are of particular uh, appeal to you. Um, in the work that we did with consumers where mm-hmm. we asked them to try and identify moments in everyday life where they felt um, uh, AR could play a role. They came up with things like um, using AR to identify, um, say, food in a fridge or in a cupboard um, and make suggestions based on expiry dates about what you could make with that with that food. Other people came up with ideas around the gym yeah. where you could scan the weight machine and get a demo of how to use the weight machine properly or more effectively. Um, so I think there's lots of different moments um, mm. within within the day which we, where we see potential for AR to be used on a more um, regular, ongoing basis around utility. I thought the active consideration part of the consumer journey, where people are going to be mm-hmm. choosing which products to buy, 
that could be visualising it in their home. I thought that was a really interesting sort of utility use case that, that, that came out of the report. And how far away are we from that actually manifesting itself? Is that a long way off? Or? No, it's happening right now. Okay. Um, there's been some really interesting tech developments, particularly from Apple with ARKit, uh, which uses something called visual inertial odometry, to drop a very techie term, but that allows uh, apps to recognise a surface, so it could be a table or the floor in your room, and then place a 3D model as if it's really there. Uh, so for product visualisation, especially with things like furniture or um, you know th- things of that nature, that um, active consideration part of the consumer journey is already really helping uh, drive sales. Yeah, I guess I guess the standout example that people often refer mm-hmm. to is IKEA Place, yeah, um, which uh, allows you to visualise furniture in the home. Amazon in the in the US within the within the basic Amazon app have a feature called AR View which is a similar thing obviously across a wider wider product range. Um, in the UK, Zara recently did a, a, an in-store in AR activation which include a kind of catwalk models mm-hmm. coming to life and, 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 um, you know, and showing different items of clothing in the store which you could then go on and, on and buy. So I think there's lots of different ways in which that visualization um, uh, aspect can, can come to life. In fact, Max, didn't you? do some work with Nespresso to we do did. something similar? We did. We worked with them to visualise their different coffee machines right. which store staff could use in the store so they didn't have to have all the stock out. They could be with a customer and talk them through the different models and different colours. But also people could do that in their own home to see what their Nespresso coffee machine looks like in their kitchen on their work surface. Okay. So, I mean, I guess if you've got the likes of Apple and Google and others uh, supporting it financially, irrespective of that, is there a... Uh, consumer awareness problem around AR? I guess reports like this will help out, or do you, do you think people are unaware, or, or some brands are even aw- unaware of the benefits of it? Or Yeah, it's an interesting point, and one we've discussed quite a lot when we did the research. I mean, the actual term itself has very low understanding, um, yeah. but when you talk to people about their experience of um, specific AR examples, particularly things like Snap Lenses, you know, Pokemon Go, you know, other kind of gaming examples, and you look at the actual reach of those things. Um, mm. So we, we put a whole range of things together and ask people in, in our quantitative part of our research. You get to about 27% of people who've actually used one of these types of AR. Mm-hmm. So I think although people don't really use the term in, in everyday mm. uh, common parlance, there is quite a good understanding of the concept of being able to point your phone at something Mm. Um, and have some digital content or some sort of information overlaid over the top. Mm. Okay, I'm just looking at a quote here from, um, you're probably not going to like this, uh, Mark Ritson, he's obviously a contrarian, I think he called, uh, I think he called it techno-porn, uh, interesting <laughs> little jingly toys that have nothing to do with marketing or, and strategy at all. But I guess you would say he's wrong, would you say that? Well, I mean... <laughs> I'm not really, I'm not really sure what he means by jingly, jingly jangly no. items. I guess he sees it as something which is, in his view, um, a distraction. But mm. if you think about the, the scale uh, and the speed with which e-commerce generally is challenging um, bricks and mortar retail, yeah, um, this is potentially a, a way of brands you know, bridging that divide to some degree. If you think about it from a retailer sure. perspective, um, and you know, I think it's incumbent on brands to, to experiment with some of these some of these things and see where it might lead. 
And you mentioned IKEA. Other retailers are um, experimenting, I guess, too. I mean, is there any of the good examples from any of the big retailers at the moment at all? Or yeah, we're working with Seven Eleven in the US, and actually, right. their chief digital and innovation officer was talking about this at the New York Stock Exchange on Monday, where they have now, which we've been working with, among, um, committed to more of an always-on strategy with augmented reality. They've embedded it within their Seven Eleven app. And they're currently leveraging it in 10,000 stores across North America and uh, well across North America to bring to life their Deadpool partnership. Uh, so shoppers can go into a 7-Eleven, they can download the 7-Eleven app and they can uh, pose for selfies with Deadpool, they can play Deadpool games, they can crucially earn loyalty points which then links back to purchase. Uh, so it's, it's great to see a, a retailer of that size and scale really committing to this as a as a strategy. Mm. And what are its limitations at all? I mean, what's the AR experience like on a mobile phone? Is, is that the best? I mean, is it a good experience, for a good user experience? I guess you'll say it is. For now, the, the mobile device is the main entry point for mobile, uh, for augmented reality experiences. Uh, and it's got tons of advantages. Everyone's carrying them around in their pockets. Sure. We are, uh, we, we're used to scanning things now. Um, a nice thing about AR is we are looking through our phones rather than at them. So we're using our phones to bring the world around us to life rather than sort of disappearing into them. Um, Jeremy could probably talk more to this, but there are some very interesting use cases uh, when it comes to a world that is more around wearables. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the research we did, people came up with some examples where the where the phone is a, is a potentially a limiting factor. Mm. So, you know, one scenario that some of our consumers um, uh, envisage was using it in a in a fitness in a, uh, situation where you're running and you have an, an a, AR um, almost like a ghost of yourself or your, as your personal best for running you know a half marathon or whatever it is that you that you chase. Now clearly holding a phone up to do that is pretty impractical, mm. um, and there are limitations in the sense of the the frame that you have to look through mm. having to hold something up. Um, you know, it's, it's an issue in certain situations. So I think longer term, and this is certainly, I think, where, where Apple um, are looking for this to go, um, smart glasses that you would wear at least, you know, for a good proportion of the time, maybe not all the time, um, but smart glasses which then bring up content or information as mm. overlays sp- spontaneously rather than you necessarily having to um, uh, initiate the interaction. I think that is is the sort of long-term direction of travel. I mean, that's still a good three years plus probably away. When we uh, were in in one of our meetings prior to the report, we were discussing this and we came to the conclusion that when wearables are more prevalent, there'll probably still be those social norms like there are with sunglasses where if you're sitting having lunch with someone, you're going to take your sunglasses off. If you come inside, you'll likely take your sunglasses off. But there are specific things like running, skiing, you know, mm. uh, where, where it, mm. it's, it's the norm to have something on your face. Right, so, so Google Glass with, with VR was a failure, but it could be a success with AR, is that right? or, not, or? Well, I think the, the issue with Google Glass, uh, well, at least one of the issues, was the, the form factor and how it looked. I mean, people yeah. thought you looked like a dick, if I, if I can say that on your podcast. I'm sure, I'm sure I can. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, the issues around people's perception of it always being on and you not and the other person in the, in a situation not knowing whether they're being recorded which obviously breaks all sorts of mm. kind of social norms so I, I think you know things have hopefully been learned from that and I okay. suspect that the Apple 
when they do eventually come out with a, a product in this area will no doubt pay incredibly uh, detailed attention to, to how it looks aesthetically um, and will design it in such a way that it, you know it, it can transgress some of those um, or can avoid some of those transgressions. Okay. So can you just, and finally, both of you, can you just paint a bit of a picture of where, we, where we're likely to be in 10 years' time then? Marks, I'll start with you. In 10 years' time, there will be a very robust developer ecosystem for content creators, agencies, to be building and, and thinking about these content types. Um, any comms campaign will have a, an AR thread to it. As we've mentioned, there will be more implementations that are accessed through wearable devices. Um, uh, you know, uh, where do I hope we won't be in ten years? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the hyper reality video where we're being interrupted constantly by digital information smeared on every surface of, of the real world. Okay. Um, but yeah. And Jeremy. Yeah. So, so I think that the. That handheld device, like you know, like the mobile phone, will still be an important access point for AR. Yeah. Um, not least because you know, to Max's point, it still does give you ultimately control over when and where you you activate something. That said, I do expect um, you know smart glasses of some description to be pretty prevalent. Um, yeah. I'm not sure it will be to the extent of you know mobile phone penetration. So we're not talking. I think 80% of the population will have um, smart glasses, but I would I would think. You know, potentially a quarter to maybe a third of the population by that time would be using some form of smart glass. So I think the key will be about user initiation. Right. Um, so you know, using things like uh, uh, technology that tracks your gaze and where you're looking right. um, to give people control over when things are, are, are surfaced. Um, and I think clearly it will be integrated into wider ecosystems around voice assistance, um, so that there's some intelligence about some of the things that you're more likely to like than someone else so it's not hopefully highly aggressive spam like the hyper reality and video but something that is actually genuinely providing information at the right moment for you um, and is genuinely of service to people okay. that's, that's the hope anyway <laughs> okay and finally where can where can listeners get hold of and look look at the layered report then is that on the, the mindshare website at the moment? yeah the easiest way is to go yeah straight to the mindshare website um and you'll find um, the full report there's a two minute uh video as well which tells the story of the of the project um which is certainly a more uh easier and more digestible way to access it in the first place right everything's there okay uh jeremy max thank you very much 